At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting seasons are opening up, but that does not mean it is too late to check out some saddle gear. You should be headed over to tetherednation.com and checking out the gear that they have. This year, I'll be using the Phantom saddle. Uh, the previous two years, I was using the Mantis saddle. All their saddle equipment is killer. They've got a couple new things that have just come out. So they have the an XL Predator platform, which is just a little larger for those of you that might have some some bigger feet and needing just a little bit more room on your on your platform. They also have the Eberhardt Signature Series saddle which will be coming out and made available, I believe, September 18th, if I'm not mistaken. So be sure that you're headed over to tetherednation.com, checking out their gear, and get saddled up for the season. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truths from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 194. Today, I am cranking up another session with Mr. Dan Enfault for the Hunting Beast listener Q&A, and today, we're talking aggressive bow hunting tactics. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. The weather has finally changed. Cold weather. And uh, my season's just getting ready to get kicked off, man. I got like two weeks left. Actually, a little less than two weeks if you're listening to this on Wednesday. Um, and I, I got to say, I'm pretty I'm pretty jacked. And I'm actually, I've been ahead of the game for the most part this year as far as getting, you know, all, all my things kind of, kind of ready. I had my trail cameras out kind of on time. A few of them lagged behind a little bit. But overall, I have this weird kind of uneasy feeling because I feel like I'm missing something. But I've done everything I need to do. The last thing I was kind of doing it was uh, um, for some water access stuff. I was trying to get a uh, a trolling motor for my for my kayak, and and I think because of you know some of the shipping and uh, logistic things that companies have had for obvious reasons during the course of this this year so far, um, the engine or the motor that I wanted to get just wasn't available. I couldn't find it anywhere. And, uh, and or at least for the price that it was, was supposed to be sold for, you could find it on eBay and people were charging like an additional hundred, two hundred dollars for, you know, something that was $105 at the, at the store. And I had a, 
I had a gift certificate that a family member had given me for a, a gift to a particular store, and so I wanted to use that. And so finally, they had one available, or they had a few available, and I had it shipped here. So that was that's kind of the last thing that I'm doing is 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 trying to get that thing you know squared away. Not that I'm afraid to do some paddling, but I tend to get wet when I paddle, um, which is fine for early season, but it's not going to be so fine as we get into the. Uh, as we get into the colder months of the, of the year. Um, and so I, I'm probably doing something wrong since I'm a novice when it comes to, to kayaking and, and, and paddling in. Um, so I thought I would just try to take some of that out of the equation. And I had some gift certificate dollars to spend and figured I would just do that and, uh, and, and, and solve the issue all the way around. So that actually came in this week. And so I need to kind of figure that out, get it set up and, and ready to roll. But otherwise I just kind of feel like there's something that I haven't done. I mean, I'm shooting my bow. I'm good to go, you know, in, in, in that realm. As I had mentioned, you know, Greg helped me get tuned up and then I had to do some broadhead tuning uh, and that took me just a little bit to kind of get those things kind of uh, flushed out. What I ended up doing actually was I was having a little bit of a challenge getting, you know, my broadheads to fly, um, at, at least the way I wanted them to, you know, being kind of particular about it. Um, and I ended up moving to a, a four fletch uh, arrow um, for for this year. Um for whatever reason, the three fletch just wasn't doing it. And I was shooting okay with a three fletch, but I've just felt like it could have had a little bit more stability. And so I ended up fletching a couple arrows with four fletch. Um, and, uh, that seemed to do the trick. Everything started landing, you know, grouped together nicely, um, you know, out to like 40 yards, um, which I don't really anticipate shooting any further than probably 30. And most of my setups are probably going to be a lot closer than that even. So I'm in pretty good shape as far as, um, uh, as far as that goes this past, you know, holiday weekend, uh, it was actually back, back home. And it's always nice to be back home. Cause you know, our family lives in the, in the, in the country, um, with plenty of, you know, property around us and stuff like that. And so, you know, this time of year, what I like to really do, um, you know, I've not done it so well in the past where I've gone out and, you know, the first hunt or two, it's like always kind of been a disaster as far as getting in and out of the timber where I forgot something or I made more noise than I wanted to or whatever. Um, you know, and that's, that's on me. That's my bad. I should, I should probably, I should have in the past been more diligent about that. Um, but this year I kind of had a, a reason to kind of, you know, even more so to refocus on that, um, refocus on being smooth whenever that, that was those first couple hunts, because I have that, you know, a really good deer that I'd mentioned, I think in a previous podcast that I'd found, uh, while glass in a bean field and I actually located him, you know, bedded. And I know you're probably thinking a lot of you guys are probably thinking, you know, well, he's going to shift and he may or may not even be there. But the reality is, is my season comes in in two weeks and I can probably, if those beans don't turn, which tonight I'm going to do a drive by and see if uh, those beans are still looking good. Um, if they don't turn, you know, he should probably be sticking around for the next two, three weeks. And so when my season opens, I pro I should have probably a week, you know, maybe two at most to where I'll have an opportunity to try to kill that deer. And he's, he's, he's a really good deer uh, for Pennsylvania in, in any state, really, he'd be a good deer. Um, and so that's my, so that's my plan is to try to kill that deer early. Cause I know where he's at. He's probably going to shift soon thereafter, after the season opens pretty, pretty shortly after. So I'm going to have a small window of opportunity. So if I'm aggressive, I go in and blow it out. No harm, no foul. Cause he's moving off anyway. And I didn't really booger anything up for any other, you know, other, any other hunting I want to do in that general area, area for the, uh, uh, for the season. So with that, I had added incentive to, uh, just kind of get dialed in and smooth out my, my process of getting into the tree. And so I've spent the past, you know, a uh, little bit of last weekend and then, you know, made several climbs this weekend, um, just to kind of ascend and descend with my gear, getting in and out really quiet, introduced my, my brother-in-law 
to a saddle since I had, you know, I was using my Phantom. He was using, and, and I just put him in in a in a in the Mantis that I still have, and uh, did some climbing and had him climb too because he's interested in getting into into a saddle. So I got him kind of acquainted with it, and uh, it was just good to kind of get some climbs out of the way, man, because you just, you know, it's it doesn't take very many, you know, two or three climbs, and it becomes second nature, and everything kind of comes back again to you. Um, but you know, it's those first, you know, two or three climbs where you really have the element of surprise, especially if you know where you might have some deer bedded or something like that, that, uh, could be the difference between getting a, an opportunity to release an arrow and an opportunity to not, it was nice kind of having him along with me too. Cause as I was climbing, you know, he was making the comment. He's like, man, he's like, that's just really quiet. He's like, you don't, he's like, you're not really making any, any noise. He's like, it really just sounds like a squirrel, like a little bit of the scraping of the bark and stuff like that with, you know, whether it's my boots or, you know, whatever the case is. Um, so I was able to get in and out quiet, which was, which was great. <clears throat> the other thing I did just recently, and it wasn't a big move, but it, it made a little bit of a difference. So I was using, when I created my, my, my sticks that I made, you know, some 17 inch shorties that I took lone wolf full size sticks and cut them down. Um, I was using a, a double step on the top from, you know, a manufacturer who's, you, you know, has those for sale on their site. Um, and it worked okay, you know, and they were snug on the, on the, on the post, you know, well enough, but they had just a little bit of play in them, you know, not a ton, but enough to where it was like, you know, freak you out a little bit, maybe, you know? And so the past couple of weeks I had this other stick idea that I wanted to try out. So I bought some parts and was making this other modded stick idea. Um, and it didn't pan out it, or it didn't pan out as well as I wanted it to. And so I ended up reverting back to using the sticks that I currently have. Um, but what I ended up doing in order to make those kind of new options is I ended up buying some, uh, pieces from, from Dan, from, you know, the honey beast. And it was really the double step for the, the top of the beast stick. And what I really like about that is it has two holes actually to put bolts through and makes it rock solid. So that's the last mod that I really did is I updated my sticks, um, with, uh, with the beast double step. And now they're rock solid and, and, and tight and ready to roll. And so I don't get any of that wobble when I'm standing at 14, 15, you know, 16, 18, 20, however, however high I'm setting my, my platform on that particular hunt. Uh, I don't have the wobble on that top step as I'm stepping up onto it, which in the dark or anytime really can be a little bit unnerving. Uh, and so it's just, it, it shouldn't have taken me that long to kind of come up with a remedy for it, but, it, but it did. And, uh, it just makes the climb that much better. The other thing I did is I never moved my Versa button last year. Uh, which would kind of um, give me a little bit more of a, I guess, an option for a kick out on a stick. I really didn't have a problem with that last year, but I had the time this year. So I ended up drilling a, an additional hole, moving the Versa button up just a little bit on, on those sticks. So, um, so they cinch into the, or they tie into the tree just a little bit tighter. So all systems are go. I'm ready to rock for the season. Um, and I uh, just can't wait to kind of get things kicked off, man. I hope, I know you guys are probably chomping at the bit too. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and get jumped into today's podcast. Another session with our buddy, Dan Enfault. Um, you know, super appreciative of him doing this series. I, I've really enjoyed doing the series. I hope you guys have been digging it. And today, what we're going to really talk about, um, you know, it's, it's really kind of a catch-all. You know, we wanted to kind of focus on maybe different times of the season, maybe some aggressive tactics. So this last session, this will be a you know two-part series, or this will be a two-part session, just like all the other ones. And this is part number one. Um, and what we're talking a lot about in this one is really just like a catch all. So you're going to hear some stuff that might be wind related. You're going to hear some stuff that might be seasonally related to different, you know, specific times of the year, you know, hunting tactics for that, uh, for those particular times of the year. You're also going to hear some stuff just about like aggressive tactics and, you know, how to move in close and stuff like that. We also have uh, Tim Hinkey on as well, who is a, who is a beast member. 
uh, and, and, and is, uh, you know, knows Dan as well. And we thought it'd be cool to bring on an additional beast for this session. Um, and it's kind of an interesting take because, you know, Dan hunts a wide variety of terrain and, and, and stuff like that from hill country to swamps, to farms, to, you know, you name it, he's hunting it. Um, Tim, where his, you know, uh, where his experience really kind of lies is he does a lot of big woods hunting. And so it's really kind of cool to hear the kind of like differences between how they both approach, you know, similar questions or similar kind of situations just based on the different types of areas they hunt. Tim's hunting areas with really low deer density. Um, he's also hunting, you know, I believe it's Northern Wisconsin where he also has some predator issues, which, you know, um, lends itself to low deer densities. Um, and then just, you know, super big, big woods, big tracts of land, you know, so low deer densities, you know, and, and not a, not a lot of movement, not a lot of deer sightings and just a really challenging area to hunt. So it's really cool to kind of hear the difference, uh, different opinions based on, you know, where, where they, uh, each are, each are hunting and having their experiences. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening and we're going to go ahead and get jumped into the podcast. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. You are listening to the next installment of the Hunting Beast Listener Q&A mini-series. It doesn't seem like much of a mini-series, does it, Dan? It seems like a, a large series, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not, there's not much mini about it. It's been some really good, long conversations, um, lots of episodes, you know, people have really been digging it and this is the final the final one the final hurrah and so for this one what we decided to do is uh really do a catch-all um where we have some you know some aggressive tactics stuff that you guys wrote in you know ask some questions about some trail camera stuff some big wood stuff early season rut hunting so it's a little bit of a little bit of everything and looking forward to getting started but before we do that you know i know that we were bringing on a listener during this session uh through this series but we felt like since this was the grand finale of the series, it only felt right that we gave you two beasts for the price of one. So we have Mr. Tim Hinky with us. What's going on, buddy? How are you? Hey, Clint. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet, man. I'm glad you can. Uh, I'm glad you can join. You and I had a really good chat earlier this week, just talking about you know getting you uh, you on the show and trading some some stories and some tactics and stuff like that. So looking forward to jumping into these questions with you, but. With that, I think if you guys are game for it, I think we got a lot of questions. We should probably just jump right to it if you guys are cool with it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, go. Cool. All right, awesome. So this first one, this first fellow writes in. Uh, this is really around uh, around trail cameras. You know, he's he, what he asks here is, um, you know, it's trail camera season right now. Of course, we're in the thick of it. Uh, people, you know, getting their cameras out and so forth. He said, you know, what is your go-to tactic for locating shooters with a trail camera? Are you soaking them? you know, embeds from, you know, or embedding areas from the previous years? Are you using field edges, you know, classic field edge kind of inventory methods, or are you using something else? And Dan, we'll go to you, you first, and then we'll kind of go around the horn. So how are you using trail cameras to locate your, locate your shooters? Or are you? Uh, well, for me, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm dropping those uh, trail cameras at uh, uh, road crossings, river crossings, uh, food sources, um, um, places near where I'm going to hunt, but not where I'm going to hunt, uh, places where deer will accept, uh, human scent. Uh, I drop a lot of them along, uh, human hiking trails, just out of sight of the trail. Um, because I really don't want to, um, find a spot to hunt with a camera. Mm-hmm. I want to find a deer to hunt. And then I'll let my scouting skills and my understanding of, uh, the woods dictate where I hunt. I just want to know if there's a buck there that I want to go after. So that's what the trail cameras do for me. 
I think if you're putting a trail camera in a, um, in a hunting spot and it's not a cell camera, it's not left there for a long time and get the intel for next year, maybe, um, you're not doing yourself any service. You're harming your hunting more than you're, uh, you're helping. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree with that. Tim, what about, what about you, man? How are do you, well, first, I don't know we even talked about this when we chatted earlier in the week, but do you, uh, do you use cameras at all? Or, and if you do, how are you, how are you kind of using them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess a little background on, uh, where I hunt, uh, it's mostly Northern Wisconsin, uh, big woods hunting, um, where we don't have like fields, uh, agriculture. So you can't, you can't shine, you can't glass. Um, so show cameras are actually a big, big deal um up by us because um it's a way of you know gathering that inventory and seeing what bucks are still alive so so yeah i definitely um i think it's a great question um the first thought i had was uh um as far as like locating bucks i want to know um my history where where i was i getting bucks and what time of year that's i mean that's really important to me um but as far as location where i put them um i'll put them on perennial scrapes i'll put them on uh you know, just well-known walking trails. Um, old logging trails are a good one. Um, those those types of places. Yeah, yeah, I would tend to agree. I, I think, you know, it's funny. I think the more I kind of, I say maybe, you know, the more I learn, you know, and, and get more and more comfortable with kind of using the mobile hunting and, you know, beast tactics, if you will, you know, I think my camera strategy overall has, has evolved where I, I – I, I probably do a little bit of both and it's probably a little bit dependent on where, where I'm hunting. You know, a lot of the places I'm hunting doesn't have a lot of ag. And so I'm doing a lot of, I think what you're doing, Tim, you know, I'm using like places where I know either has a licking branch that they're using year round and I'm going to get some inventory there or, you know, you know, looking at where perennial scrapes are going to be. And, um, but I think that was a really, you know, a good part of the answer that you, that you gave is really kind of looking at what time of year are those deer there and when, and Dan, I think I'm using it probably more similar to how you do in terms of, I'm not so much looking for the camera to tell me what spot to hunt. I'm looking for if there's a deer in the general vicinity that I, that I would like to hunt. Um, yeah. You know, I've played it both ways. Have you, have you ever, you know, have you in the past hung cameras where you plan to hunt or have you always kind of steered away from that just in general? I, I mean, I think uh, I've tried it once or twice many years ago and it always seemed to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, one thing I saw is um, when I put cameras um near bedding areas or, or in spots where I expected daylight movement. Um, I put them there because I expected there was a big buck there. Mm-hmm. And what I would get uh, repeatedly was within the first day or two, I would get a picture of the big buck staring at the camera. Mm-hmm. And then he wouldn't be on that camera again for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And then he'd be more nocturnal, more shy, coming in spotty, but he'd be coming back. Um, and it just goes to show you that that first opportunity to kill that deer is so huge. First day you got them on, on daylight, you know, yeah. and that happened over and over and over again. I mean, it's not every place you drop a camera, obviously. Right. But if it's, uh, you know, um, one out of three or something, it, it, it's telling for people who notice that stuff and don't just look at the picture, you know, and say, Oh, I only got one picture of a buck there. Look at the time, look at the day, what was going on. Did you just drop the camera or whatever? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, it taught me to back off a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I've noticed that too, even when, if I'm putting in like a mock scrape, it's like, I've had that happen a couple of times this year. And it's not necessarily that I'm going to hunt there specifically, but I did notice that where it's like, I put that mock scrape in and literally the first day 
boom, a couple bucks hit it. And then after that, it was like zero. You know what I mean? I mean, not that they completely left the county or whatever, but they were just a little weary, you know, of that, of that spot for whatever reason, whether they sensed the camera or heard something or whatever the case is, you know, I think that's interesting. You know, I think the one thing that, you know, you alluded to as well, and I'd be curious to get Tim's kind of response to this, because knowing that he hunts a lot of, you know, kind of like big woods stuff is that, you know, you know, you met Dan, you'd mentioned kind of letting them soak or let, if you're going to leave them there for the year or, or whatever the case is. And I think a lot of times, you know, in those places, if there are places that you potentially do want to hunt, you know what I mean? And you want to get inventory of like maybe how they're accessing it or how they're moving through an area or whatever the case is like that long-term annual data I've found at least for me in big wood setting has become critical where it's like knowing when they're going to be in a general area, considering that they're maybe not always, you know, on this ridge top or on this, you know, leeward side that they're really only there for four or five days out of the year. And knowing that that might be the time where you have an opportunity to kill them. Tim, do you see some similar things in, in, uh, in where you're hunting? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you got those spots where those mature bucks, they just show up at certain times of the year. And uh, having that trail camera data, I mean, that's 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 huge for, you know, for a big woods hunter. Um, you know, Dan, Dan talks about it all the time with uh, mature deer. They, they don't do anything at random. Nothing mm-hmm. is random about what they do. I mean, they're they're there at a certain time of year for a reason. So, you know, having having that picture, having that daylight movement, it's huge. It's it's huge when in it, especially with, um, if it's over a scrape or if it's, you know, through an area. Um, like a bedding area, it, I mean, yeah, I can't think of, you know, a, a better scenario than knowing that the buck I'm after is, you know, walking, to the, you know, in the daylight, um, waiting for, you know, so I can ambush them really. Right. Yeah. And Dan, and I assume that's kind of how you play that as well. It's just like from a trail camera perspective, it sounds like you're playing kind of the long game, right? Well, one, you're looking for inventory and then you're also kind of playing the long game to a degree, right? No. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I mean, I, I, I use it all different ways. I mean, a lot of times you drop uh, cameras along hiking trails where they accept your scent or, you know, or, or food areas. And I'm using that intel right away. Mm-hmm. You know, just next time I'm in the area, I'm checking it. And if, uh, if there's a deer on a pattern or something, I'm using that. It might be at night, but now I know he's in the area. And if it's only like, say, it's 830 or 9 o'clock at night, only an hour after dark, um, I know he's in the area somewhere. So mm-hmm. then I can start doing the elimination game of bedding areas. And I really haven't spooked that deer because he's used to human scent on the edge of the field or crossing mm-hmm. the hiking trail or whatever. And he's not relating that scent of me back to his bedding area. So now I can take a guess and still go in and have a clean hunt on the the, the um, terrains that should be holding bedding in the, in the area and uh, going for the kill. Right. And I'm assuming you both are probably backtracking based on timestamp too, right? Where it's like if you're getting him an hour after dark there, it's like, you're looking like, okay, what bedding areas would be the most obvious ones that could take him an hour to get from there to here, you know, type of thing. I'm, I'm assuming you're kind of looking at patterns like that too, right? Well, yeah. You, yeah. you know, you might get a picture of a buck at like midnight and, um, it just happens to be a phenomenal buck. Um, one of the best ones you've seen in a couple of years and you really want to go after that deer. Well then all of a sudden more cameras go in that area and you start shifting directions to see which way he's coming from you know, try to get a, a bead to get closer to where, where he's at, you know, and I mean, there's a lot of ways to use trail cameras. Right. Uh, I'm just, I just don't think a guy should use one that's not a cell camera right where he's going to hunt. I think it's, that's slapping that deer on the rear and 
<laughs> you know, you know, game on. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, at that point, your game is almost over. <laughs> at that point, as, it, as it's right. just getting to be on. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like I, I, I've def- definitely transitioned to more trying to play that long game. And I have used them in the past to do a little bit of, you know, you know, patterning, if if you will. Um, you know, casting a net and starting starting to work backwards toward a betting area to try to figure out like, well, where is he coming from? Which betting area is he, is he exactly using? I've done it once successfully, but I feel like in doing that, I've probably boogered more hunts than I've than I've helped myself in the past. And so I've kind of started following more of the same you know thing you were talking about earlier, Dan, which is like I'm using some you know not a intrusive non intrusive places where I can maybe capture some inventory and get some learnings and then try to make a a plan from there. And what I think I'm really hearing both of you say is you know, I think a lot of guys use cameras almost as a crutch and they hunt the camera, right? As opposed to just using it as a yeah. tool to help you verify what you think you already know. And then, and then, you know, and then kind of, um, use it as a, as a validation point of your, of your information set that you have, as opposed to, I saw him here, I'm going to hunt him here. I think it's, I think it's broader than that, if I'm not mistaken. One so, of my uh, favorite phrases is, um, do you want to hang a picture of that buck on your wall or do you want to hang that buck on your wall? <laughs> right. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's a, <laughs> I think I would l- rather hang the, uh, I'd rather hang the, the buck on the wall. Unfortunately for me, in, in many instances, all I have is the picture. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I think that probably is for, for a lot of folks though. But, uh, all right. So I think, is there anything else with trail cameras you guys want to touch on before we move off that one? Or I feel like we, I, th- I feel like we covered a, a good bit about trail cameras there. I'm good. To, to kind of go back with uh, what you said about the, being the crutches, um, one of the mistakes that guys get into, I think, um, with trail cameras is chasing pictures. Um, and they got to remember that, you know, th- those pictures could be a week old. So that deer, you know, is, is not always going to do exactly what you're seeing at that moment. Some people will hang a camera, they'll get a picture of a deer, and then all of a sudden they'll be popped up in that spot just open for that deer. But that deer is probably, you know, not going to come back here all the time. Right. So I guess, yeah. So like, yeah, as a, as a crutch, like you, you, you can't be chasing pictures. You got to be chasing the deer. And there's a, there's a lot more to it than just watch, looking at the pictures. You know, there, that's just the piece of the puzzle. It's the tool you can use. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of guys get um, way too into, uh, trail cameras. They almost get like an addiction to them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a, there's a happy medium. Use them as a tool that uh, gets to be to the point where, um, you got to go out and spend, uh, you, you know, um, two hours checking cameras before you can hunt. There, there's an issue there and it's probably not helping your hunting. It's probably hurting your hunting in, the, in that case. And I've seen that on a lot of ranches, kind of just what Tim's saying, where, um, you see guys that just got, uh, um, cameras like all over the place. Don't drive and check all the cards, take the cards back, go through all the cards and then decide where to hunt. And it just seems like that to some degree, all of a sudden it isn't hunting anymore, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Right. At that point, you basically blew up every spot that you have, <laughs> you know, for, for the day, yeah. you right. know, I, you know, I, I'd be curious, how do you guys check them? Cause I mean, me usually, you know, I'll check them, you know, for example, I, I often get mine out right around like the, you know, end of May, beginning of June, especially if there's some places that I've never hunted before, I'll get them out kind of early because I want to go in maybe in a month and, and, make sure I'm just even getting an inventory, making sure I'm in the right place. That way, if I'm not, I have a chance to move it one more time to see if I can get on either a good trail or a good crossing or whatever to get some inventory. And then usually I might do, you know, a check sometime in July, you know what I mean? Which I've just recently done. And then after that, it's like, I basically let them set at that point And then I don't check them again until 
I go back to intend to hunt an, an area close to that where it's like, if I'm walking by, then I'll pull the card. But if I'm not, then it'll just sit until the end of the season. And do you guys kind of follow a similar approach? I check uh, cameras just... kind of as I'm going through, like mm-hmm. if, uh, a lot of the time if I'm hunting, you know, if, I, if I'm passing through and I'm like, okay, my camera's going to be here, I'll check it on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, if, uh, it, and it depends on the time. It d- depends on the time of year, the situation and things. Um, I, I use cell cams, uh, here and there. So, um, I, I don't even touch the cell cams. I just leave them, leave them be mm-hmm. unless they, you know, need batteries or whatever. Right. Dan, what about you? You know, every place, every place you hunt is, is different. And there's, you know, like I said, it's a tool. I mean, um, you don't always use a hammer to pound nails. Sometimes you pull nails too. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, occasionally I am checking the camera or, or, or going in specifically to see what's going on in an area. And sometimes I'm only going in and checking when I hunt and sometimes it's sitting there for a while, right. you know, and there's, there's big differences terrain wise too, in places that you go. You know, and what you're trying to get out of that camera. I mean, if you're trying to find if there's a certain buck in the area, or if you're trying to pattern a certain buck that you know is in an area, or you're trying to get intel for next year, like you said. I mean, every scenario is different. And one huge difference between me and Tim, even though you see tendencies um, in Tim's answers to go right along with mine, um, there's still some big differences in the way me and Tim are, are, are approaching things. Because where I'm at, there's a lot of, a lot of big bucks around. Where Tim's at, there might be one in a square mile. And if he just hunts spots or areas, his chance of killing a big buck is very slim. He has to go out and find where there's a big buck this year and then uh, narrow in his scope on hunting that deer. Where I have deer to hunt all over the place, just about everywhere I go. I mean, for instance, um, last night I went out and uh, I, I was at a, uh, I, was, I was filming a, uh, a live broadcast. Um, and where I was at doing it on my way home, I was going to go past a certain marsh that, uh, I know holds a big buck that I've been watching. Um, I shine that the fields around that marsh. I mean, it's only about a mile stretch and saw seven shooters I've never seen before. Hmm. I didn't even see the buck I was after. <laughs> nice. I mean, I don't think, uh, 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 Tim has that issue. Right. <laughs> I think Tim has to work a little harder to, to uh, to find a shooter, you know? Right. Right. Now that's, that's fair. And then actually this person did ask about shining. If we, if you use that to kind of locate a deer to see if he either Tim, like you mentioned, you know, is he still alive or, you know, is he in the general area or whatever? I mean, do you, it sounds like Dan, you, you'll use that tactic. Tim is, do you have the opportunity to, to do any of that type of stuff in your area or, or is it a little bit more, are you a little bit more limited? I'm, uh, I'm expanding kind of where I'm hunting. So mm-hmm. I have family that's down in, uh, Southern Wisconsin. And, uh, that's, that's one, one main tactic I'm using right now. I saw this last week and they actually went down, down there and, uh, um, did some shining on Friday and, and Saturday night. And it's kind of like, you know, a good pastime for me. I, you know, growing up, that's, you know, that was something I could do with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad to get back into it. So, um, seeing, you know, seeing the bucks in the fields again, you know, it just gets you, re- you know, really excited. Um, knowing that, okay, they're right there. And then, you know, where the, the properties are, you know, where you can hunt. And then, and then you start mapping out where, okay, I think the bedding here is going to be here, here, here. Okay. So he could be at one of these spots, you know, at this certain time. So, um, getting that visual is, is huge. And, uh, you know, if you can shine, I would 
totally recommend it to anybody. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Yeah. No, I used to do it growing up myself. I haven't done it in years and it's funny because it's, it's been brought up to me probably no less than five times by different people in the past like month and a half. And it's just, I was like, you know what? I should probably start doing that just because I enjoyed doing it when I was a kid growing up and I don't know why I haven't done it, haven't done it since. Um, you know, it's a good time with a couple of buddies, you know, and go you know, to go do that. But you might not want to take certain buddies because they might try to steal your spot. So I'll put that out there, you know, <laughs> but, you know, the, the intel I get from, uh, from shining in, in uh, one evening, it's probably the same until you get out of a trail camera running the whole summer. No, you're I mean, right. You see every every field. Yeah. You know, it's amazing what you get onto and you see. And uh, honestly, a lot of the big bucks I've shot, I wouldn't have been hunting there or even anywhere in the area, but I found the deer shining during the summer. <laughs> you know, like like July or August. Yeah. Right now is is peak time to be shining in Wisconsin. Uh, uh, outside of deer hunting season, you can shine all night long. Hmm. So you get into that 11, 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning time frame, and a lot of those uh, rural areas around, you know, the back roads around swamps and stuff and marshes, um, those deer will be right up against the road and stuff, and, and uh, you get a good look at them. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me like I'm going to have to add this back into my repertoire because you're right. I mean, I never thought of it that way, but you're 100% right. It's like you'll hang a trail camera, say, along a, along a food source, along a field edge or something like that just to get inventory, right? You're not, not going to plan to hunt there, but mm-hmm. you just want to know what bucks are there. And you're right. You hang that camera there all summer. And you may not get all the bucks because they might be entering the field at different spots unless you've got enough cameras to kind of coat the entire field to get every possible entry point, yeah. right? And one night of shining like you, it's like seven bucks. There you go. It's like that's probably pretty good you know, indicator, you got that, the, the, the bachelor group, you know, all in one shot. So, you know, who's, who's there. And then of course, you know, who was missing. And so, you know, they're, you know, like right. around somewhere as well, cause you have some historical information. So yeah, I like that. It's back in the repertoire. I'm going to get me a spotlight and I'll be doing that <laughs> in the next like weekend or so. So, <laughs> you know, but I mean, you get up to where, where Tim lives and uh, try shining with solid woods and there's no fields. I mean, yeah. then you got to go, you really, you got to go back to the cameras and, and the, the foot scouting. And a, a lot of people listening to this are probably shaking their heads there where they're at. It's illegal. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, yep. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. yeah. I know PA, I don't know exactly. I know there's a, a, a season for it, like a window, like a time frame that you're allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I know that it's like, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like 10 or 11 o'clock, whenever you can do it, I think you have to be wrapped up. At least that's what I remember from being a kid that we weren't able to, you know, when I'd be out with my dad, we had to be home or be done by a certain time. Um, so we had a specific loop that we would always go on that we knew about how long it took and, you know, and that would get us home at the right time. But, uh, all right. So I think we're going to move on to the, to the next session. That was good. I got, I got some notes there for myself to, uh, to take care of and some things to do. Um, so this next one. This fella asks, um, if you get access to a new new piece of land or you just, you know, try to decide, you know, Tim, like you're talking about going a little further south to southern Wisconsin, you know, you're going to try a new piece of public, you know, you don't have time to scout in the preseason, you didn't have time to hit it in the off season, you know, what would your process be to scout and hunt it, you know, 
successfully in the fall if you only had the opportunity to scout and hunt in the fall? How would you how would you approach that? And Dan, I guess well, let's let's start with you, and then we'll go to Tim. Okay, if, if it's me, um, I'm going to start by looking at some maps of the property. I'm going to figure out where I think the deer are probably bedding based on the terrain, based on what wind direction is the day I'm going in to hunt. And uh, I'm going to uh, go in with a stand on my back and my bow, and I'm going to go in midday, and I'm going to go in and approach uh, an area where I think there could be bedding, and I'm going to check it, kind of look around in the area and see if there's sign. And if it looks good, I might hunt it. If it uh, looks mediocre, I, I maybe I will, maybe I won't. Um, at mediocre spots, I generally, if it's kind of like, oh, I don't know, there might be something good here. I might move on and uh, check some other spots. If I don't find something, come back. If I find something better, hunt it. But I'll kind of scout my way in like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually do pretty good doing that. Um, if you understand how uh, how deer bed and how they live on a property, it's pretty easy. I mean, if it's, uh, you know, if it's hilly, they're on the leeward sides on the little points and knobs and stuff, it's pretty easy to pick out the few areas that they would be in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if it's, uh, you know, if it's swampy, you can figure out the transitions, the islands, the points going out. Um, you, you know, you can really narrow down a property pretty fast with a map Yeah, and, uh, be pretty accurate. I, I think, you know, you probably, you'd probably be on, uh, with a map. You probably know 70 or 80% of where these, bucks are betting based on the map if you're good at it right. um but th- that's my that's my approach and, and i've done i've done fairly well doing that on right. road trips and yeah and we've talked and we, actually that's a great segue to say you know if you've not listened to the the series that we did on you know reading maps and topo i think that's a you know a session that would be worth listening to if this is something you're going up against because we cover a lot of how to use maps and you know and and find where deer are at and and, and how to read topo and stuff like that in a, in a whole session. So I would go back and take a listen to that one because we cover it pretty you know pretty extensively. But you know Tim, how like just I guess walk me through. You're going to a new piece. You know it sounds like you are getting an opportunity to do a little bit of investigating. But say that say that you weren't like how would you would your process be the same as Dan's or or any different? Yeah my yeah my process is going to be very similar to Dan's. Um, I guess I learned a lot from Dan as far as other properties, you know, um, when he talks about like out of state hunts. So, um, hopefully next year I'm going to be doing, um, I'm going to draw for Iowa, uh, and I've been scouting that. So I guess for, for my first step of the process would be, you know, determine the area or counties I want to, I want to hunt in. Right. Mm-hmm. Then I'll start looking at, okay, what are the properties? You know, I'll, I'll check the onyx and I'll, I'll look, okay, I could hunt here, here, here. And then I start thinking about like the people and the pressure. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do I want to get away from towns? Do I, you know, um, stuff that looks really easy, um, stuff that just, just looks like somebody it's going to be drawn to people. Mm-hmm. And then I'll start looking further into the maps and then I'll, you know, pick out the terrain spots and, um, I'll, you know, I'll find those edges, those transitions. And then I'll, you know, I kind of, um, guess on where the bedding is going to be. Then after that, you know, I'll, I'll even start, uh, you know, th- this is, this could be a good tip for your listeners is you, you talk to people, mm-hmm. um, to, who are, who are locally in the area, you know, whether it's just like a quick, you know, PM message or something that you're going to, you're going to send to somebody that you trust. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like to like blast on a social forum saying that, Hey, you know, our big bucks here or there, you know, are they in this County? <laughs> Um, cause then, cause then, you know, people are, might be getting on you and then they, you know, and they, and there's lurkers out there and, 
Right. Um, that's always a good way of obtaining that information. Yeah. Either that. Then, or, I'll, then I'll, what I like to do. I was just going to say either that? that, either that or they're gar holing you. Like, oh, there's a huge deer here. You should totally hunt here. It's great. <laughs> but go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. I didn't it, mean yeah, to interrupt. That happens too. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that's right. Yeah, you, know, um, you know, what's interesting is, uh, last year, Tim came with us on, uh, the hunt in public challenge mm-hmm. and, uh, he helped film a little, then he went off and hunted on his own. And it, and it was interesting because he had been hunting a lot up in the Northwoods and he would go, you know, there's not a lot of deer up there and he'd go 10, 20 sits without seeing a deer. And I could see, um, the frustration in him, like, uh, seeing what I'm getting onto and what some of the other guys are getting onto and he's not seeing anything. And, and a big part of it is just not the deer up there. And, uh, to see the excitement in, in him when, uh, when he started getting on deer in Michigan, because, because it, it proved to him that he was doing everything right because every place he went, he was getting on, on deer and, and, and some pretty decent bucks for Michigan. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, you remember that, uh, Tim? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a, just a little bit, exciting. right? Um, just, yeah, just, you know, it's, um, it's amazing. You can see more deer in, in one night in Michigan than you can a whole season up in Northwoods, Wisconsin. <laughs> right right i remember you saying that you're, you're like i don't see this many deer in a season and uh, i yeah. had kind of that that similar awakening you know many many years ago um when i first went to iowa which is over you know well over two decades ago but uh i went down there and people were telling me how hard it was to get on deer and they're shooting four pointers and stuff and i went out and i was on pope and young's every day and it was like nuts i seemed like 60 of them in a week and i was like what the heck is going on and it was just it, it, you know after hunting a hard area you know that just seems so much easier yeah you, you know if you, if you did it yeah. right it was it was so much easier so i i would be willing to bet some of the best hunters in the world are guys that are struggling mm-hmm. and they're in hard places like somewhere back in pennsylvania or ten, tennessee or some overpopulated place in you know uh, virginia Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably some great hunters that'll never be known, but they're doing really good there, you know, but if they ever got out of their shell and went to a place that's got a lot of big bucks, they would just go on a killing spree, you know? Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. It's funny. I think Timmy, I think you and I even talked about that where I was saying, you know, last year for Pennsylvania, like I had a pretty good year. I hunt, you know, the Eastern part, a lot of the public's small, so it's not, a you know, a lot of 60 acre, 300 acre, 200 acre, 150 acre kind of pieces, you know, where it's like after you do the reduction of like what could be good, you may be left with a spot, you know what I mean? That you know is like people are going to stay away from that you think is going to be an opportunity. And what I said last year, I was, you know, I told him, I was like, I had a pretty decent year last year. I had two known deer that were uh, both a little over, uh, over Pope and young. Right. And for this area, that's, that's, that's a good deer. Uh, and I had an encounter with both of them last year. Just never one. I got dark deer and couldn't slip an arrow and another one, he ghosted me in one spot and then I caught up with him like two weeks later in mid October in another spot and he busted me. Um, and I was like, and for me, that was a good year. I was like, cause I had two encounters with two, you know, mature, what would be mature for Pennsylvania, you know, in this area. I was like, so didn't kill him. I was like, but you know, I don't know a year that I had an encounter with two mature deer in Pennsylvania on public land at, in one season, you know? And so it's all, mm-hmm. it's all perspective. Right. And then I go to Iowa and I was seeing bucks every day like every day it was passing bucks that i would kill usually in pennsylvania you know what i mean which was you know kind of mind-blowing but it's funny that this question comes up about how to you know how to, how you would approach you know a 
brand new piece because I was literally just doing that today because I'm kind of trying to finalize where I'm going to go in Missouri. And I don't have a chance to go scout it. It's going to be completely like a, you know, a mobile hunt where I'm just going to have to go figure it out on the fly. And I was doing, Tim, exactly what, you know, both you and Dan said, where it's like I'm studying maps, trying to figure out where the opportunities are, where the easy access is. And then I actually talked to, called their uh, conservation department uh, this afternoon and talked to a conservation agent uh, just to kind of get an understanding, ask them a little bit about the pressure, ask them about, you know, what, what type of habitat are on these places that I couldn't completely tell from the map. Um, get a sense of like, you know, I know when gun season comes in, does this get a heavy influx of people to come in to hang stands like two weeks before, or when does that happen? How rural is the area? You know what I mean? Stuff like that. And great, you know, ton of information where it actually changed where I planned to hunt. Like I was planning to be in one part and now I'm deciding that I'm going to actually travel an hour West and go to another piece because I think I'm going to be away from people and it's way more remote. You know, so it's, you know, I think it's just trying to put the puzzle pieces together from afar and then don't be afraid to have a, a pliable plan when you get there. Cause like Mike Tyson says, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face <laughs> and then you go out of state or go to a new place. You tend to get punched in the face and then you just adapt. So, um, anything else to add to that one guys, or do we feel like that's, you know, we covered that one pretty good. I think we covered that good. All right, cool. All right, so we'll move on to this next. Actually, I, I did have a follow-up on that one, Dan. I'm sorry, I've for, I forgotten. This is for both of you, but Dan, I'll throw it to you first. So when you go into these places and like you're looking for these bedding areas on this new piece or whatever, and you kind of outline where you think the bedding is and you're you know considering the wind and all that stuff, are you concerned at all about blowing up a you know a potential bedding area like before you really get to hunt it as you're kind of you know checking those out? Or on these pieces, are you just willing to be more aggressive because you're just trying to figure out where the deer are at? Well, I'm definitely uh, concerned with that, and I'm being careful about how I go in, and I'm trying to scout it without going into the bedding area. I'm doing it from a distance. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to scout the trails coming in and out of what I think is bedding mm-hmm. and trying to read it. Um, but quite often, I mean, maybe one out of four, I blow the deer out of there because I try to be as aggressive as possible, mm-hmm. get as close as I can without going too close because a lot of times when I shoot mature deer, I shoot them at closing time, and I can hear them or see them get up, you know, 100 yards away right they don't move far so you have to push that envelope so you are going to kick some deer up you are going to bust some areas but if, you know that's just part of the game i right. mean you do that okay you know um you just move on to the next spot right and tim what about you man are you you know are you how do you play that game do you play it similarly or are you you know more aggressive or how, how what's your what's your approach to that depends on the situation really i mean um, if it's, if it's a completely new area and I'm picking that, I'm saying, if I'm picking this, this, the spot I'm, I'm thinking is a bedding area, I may be looking at other, other things along the way, depending, you know, cause it kind of depends on how far you're walking. Um, and you, that, that's where that, like that woodsmanship really comes into where you have to really read what you're seeing mm-hmm. as you're going in and, you know, and that's hunting right there. So, you know, it's like, Okay, I got I got my I got my bowl, I got my stand, got my sticks, we'll walk in and you know, and Dan talks about this all the time where he sometimes he plans to go to another area and about fifty percent he doesn't even get to his location because mm-hmm. he finds something right. else. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so, so yeah, it, gets, he, it, it depends what I'm seeing. Yeah. What were we gonna say, Dan? Right. And 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 going on to what Tim just said, I mean there's a mindset. I mean, I get asked this question so often, it kind of makes me scratch my head. It's like, it's a question that tells me that 
the guys asking these questions probably haven't done a whole lot of this. They've done it once or twice and they've failed. And they're like, I don't know how he's doing it. You know, he's, you know, it gets to be a state of mind. I mean, every hunt I'm kind of going in like that. Like Tim just said, uh, I'm, I'm going from, you know, point A to point B. I think I'm going to hunt at point B. It looks really good. Or maybe I've been there before and I know it's good and I want to hunt that destination. But along the way, I'm going to plan a course that doesn't take me down the beaten trail or the logging road that goes right past it. It's going to take me in a way that I can scout some other stuff on the way. And if I find something hot, I'm going to jump on it and hunt. Yeah. You know, um, so the, the point is, is that you get a mindset by doing that all the time, you get better at it. By jumping a few deer, you get better at it. By failing a few times, you get better at it. And it really is a progression. Mm-hmm. It's not something like, uh, well, well uh, Tim said do this, and I'm going to do that, and that's going to work. It's more of a, um, Tim said this is how he does it. And you should kind of look at what he does, analyze what you're doing, and see if some of the things Tim's doing can help you. But you have you have to learn on your own. I mean, I've got a way of sneaking in an area where I get within 75, 100 yards. I've got friends that are seasoned hunters that can't do that. Yeah, they just can't. They can't get that close. They they just can't take their equipment apart quietly. They 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 can't pick the right tree. They move too much. They move too fast. Um, and they need to stay back a little bit. And, and there's some things you got to learn for yourself on your own how to go into those areas, um, read a map, find a spot, go in and do it. The only way to, to learn how to do that is to do it. Yeah. And, and it ain't an overnight thing. I mean, yeah. you're going to fail a little before you succeed. Yeah. That was, you know, and I know Dan, you and I talked about this before. It's like, that was kind of my watershed moment for this year is where, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, there's a learning curve there, right? And there's so much failure you're going to have to endure until, you know, this style of hunting starts to really work for you, right? Because you start to figure out exactly what you said, what you learn, what to do and what not to do. You learn, you know, so many times people want to hear someone give them the magic bullet. And it's like, well, Dan does it this way or Tim does it this way or, or, you know, this guy does it this way. And they try to adopt it holistically. And that might be a good place to start, right? Just adopt that approach. And then, but when you start using it and you see, well, this worked, this part worked for me, but this part didn't work out so well. It's like, well, how do you change that to fit what you need it to do? Right. And that's where people, I think they're looking for a lock stock and barrel kind of answer. And there isn't one. And the thing that I kind of like carried with me this year, as I was kind of really, you know, this was the year I was like, I'm going for broke. It's going to be that way. I'm hunting all the time. And it's, it's just going to be what it is. You know, I'm going to learn either I'm going to have success or I'm going to fail and I'm going to learn what I'm doing incorrectly. And it was just all about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's going to feel odd. It's going to feel like you're screwing up a lot, you know what I mean? But the reality mm-hmm. is, is that you're probably doing more good for yourself than you are, than you are harm, you know, especially if you're kind of like paying attention to what you're seeing and you're picking up little nuances here and there, um, you know, cause I've been, you know, preaching the gospel, you know, <laughs> since, since those hunts this year, because I was like, this is the year I adopted it fully and ahead. I had seen more deer, better deer and better encounters than I have probably in the past five years combined. You know, and that was just due to being just saying, hey, this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm just going to go for broke and see what happens. Yeah, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to try not to screw stuff up. But if I do, it's just a, it's just a consequence of me trying to figure out how to make this work for me. So, you know, your uh, your famous quote you say about every third uh, podcast we do about Mike Tyson. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I love Mike. He's coming back, man. He's fighting Roy Jones Jr. I can't wait to watch it. It's going to be awesome. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You get a little old for that, but yeah. So you, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. But some people get punched in the face. They stumble backwards. They smile and they come right back into it for more. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who get punched in the face and they say, "I'm done with this. this is enough of this crap." And they they lay on the floor and they wait till the ten count. Yeah. And you got to be the kind of guy who embraces failure. Yeah. Got to be able to learn from it, not dwell on it. Yeah. And 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 it might sound stupid and it might sound like that's a little off the hunting topic, but really a person's attitude and the way they look at things is huge in their success. And you have to be able to understand that failure is the la- is the rungs of the ladder to success. Mm-hmm. So you, you got to be able to um, try something fail, analyze why it failed, and be happy because you got close. Yeah. It means you're getting closer to, to success, right? Yeah. So you're getting higher up that ladder. So those failures just mean that you're, you're, you're doing good. You're, you're on your way. Uh, a successful hunter, I mean, for every deer I, I get, I failed a thousand times. Right. Yeah. So, but I don't look at that as failure. I look at that as little successes. And that's what people need to do. And, um, yeah, and I mean, that's maybe it's a little off topic here, but that's huge. No, I think especially whenever you're doing some of the stuff where you're going into new places, I think it's, I think it's critical, you know what I mean? Cause you, you're going to, you're going to encounter that stuff. And if you don't have a positive mindset and kind of like a positive way of thinking and dealing with things, like you're really, you're really going to struggle and you're going to probably have a miserable time and not want to do it again, you know? Um, and so it's kind of all about the approach. Um, Tim, you kind of, you, you kind of, you, you, uh, follow that same kind of line of thinking, you know, it's like you've, you've seen a lot of failure along the way and you just kind of view it as opportunities to figure out and and ask the question why, which is I think critical for, for deer hunters to get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, being big woods hunting in an area where there's, you know, low deer density, you know, high predators. Um, it's, it's, it's really important for a big woods hunter, um, to keep that, that good attitude Mm -hmm. to, you know, embrace those failures. I mean, you lose more from, or you learn more from failing than you do from winning. You know, I'd say, I'd say to people, you know, and this is kind of like my personality is like, like I hate losing more than I love winning. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually, you know, like I just kind of like, you know, you just take the suck as as it goes Mm -hmm. and you just, you know, I kind of just use that to, to motivate you and you just keep pushing, you know? Um, and when you're in a big woods, um, it's that same situation where it's like, okay, everybody has a plan, right? Yep. Well, what, what, what if this happens, right? What, you know, what, what if the, you know, you know, a pack of wolves that shows up on your camera? Um, what if the beard hunters start shooting up, you know, you know, the area where it's like, you think that, you know, that they're going to be in, I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta be able to adapt and roll with it, you know, and, and take, you know, and, and just smile with it, whatever. It's like, you know, this is just hunting. That's the way it is. Yeah. And, uh, you learn something, you know, you learn, you know, and if, and if you're not learning something on every single hunt, um, you know, you're, you're, lo- you're losing opportunity, yeah. you know, of gaining some knowledge when you walk in. Yeah. No, hundred percent agree. I think with that, Dan, I'll give you one more famous one liner. This is my new one. And then we'll move to the next question. I think you need to be a windshield guy, not a rear view mirror guy. How's that one? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I stole that one from Colin Cowherd. I'll credit, I'll credit him in case he ever, not doesn't listen to this. Um, so this next question is, uh, early season. This fellow's asking, you know, 
are early season hunts the best time to press your luck on mature buck beds? Like, so, you know, for you, Dan, you know, we'll start with you. You know, if you know where something's bedded, you know, are you, is early season for you the, the prime time to try to press your luck? If you are going to make a, a super aggressive play, what's your, what are your think? What's your thinking on that? You know, uh, you know um, recently I broke down uh, my top 10 biggest bucks, which are all mature bucks in the top 10. And uh, I think uh, uh, looking at that, I, I definitely shot more bucks, mature bucks, in early season right around opening week than I have during rut. Hmm. Now, I've shot more deer during rut, but not the ones when you get to like five years old or older. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, every one of those deer, I was hunting that deer when I killed it. You know, um, they're real, they're real, they move real easy at that time frame, especially if your season starts like Wisconsin in, in uh, mid to early September. Those deer are still kind of on a summer pattern. But even into October, about that first week of October is when it starts going stale. You still got an opportunity if nobody's really been in the woods much that first week of you know, October, too, if you're in a October 1st state. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some good opportunities right away at the beginning of the season, I believe, um, for mature bucks and more so than during the rut. I don't think those mature bucks run around during the rut as much as people think they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, every buck that breeds we'll get a day or two and go on a runabout and uh, offer itself up to be shot. But if they were doing it all the time on a regular basis and they ran 10 miles through the woods during rut during the daytime, they wouldn't live a season. They wouldn't last, you know, right. Um, mature bucks are, are pretty intelligent and getting them on a food source in early season is probably one of your best bets. The, the trick is you, you really have to um, locate that buck and you have to know he's around because you have to get a certain window of movement, but the window is bigger. Sorry about that, folks. We had a little bit of an internet issue. Uh, so we will just go ahead and jump back into this in progress. I, I, I said something so awestrucking that, uh, you just wanted to shock. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might've happened. It was my internet. Just my internet just dropped out. So sorry about that, folks. We, we, we missed part of that, but I think Dan, what you were saying there is you were saying you have a bigger window of opportunity during that time of year, during the, during the early, early season to get on, uh, to get on a mature, on a mature deer is what it sounded like where you were headed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, for, for me, um, opening day, opening week has been really huge for me for, um, my very biggest bucks. And those are deer I've located during the summer, um, patterned, watched and did from afar and then moved in for the kill on opening day. Right. Tim, what about you, man? Are you, you, you know, big woods, is it a similar situation or is it a little bit of a different deal? Um, you know, whenever you're going to try to press your luck, is it a different time of year? Are you still pressing your luck during the early part of the year? Well, you know, if we're talking big woods, um, you know, if it's seasons, it's, if it's open and I can go, I'm going. Um, and a lot of the time it's not very good by me. Um, the deer don't, they don't move as well. Um, we have a lot of, uh, bear hunters up by us, a lot of, uh, a lot of dog hunters. So, you know, during the early season, they, they, you know, they're running their dogs like crazy and they're, and there's just, there's a lot of them and they're driving their trucks and everything. And I think that has a little bit to do with the movement of the, of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still moving in the daylight. You just gotta, you know, and there's not as many of them. Mm-hmm. So, so th- that's kind of a disadvantage up in the big woods by me. 
Um, but I'm still, I'm still going, I'm not going to let it get to me, but I'm, you know, one thought I was thinking with, with Dan is that, um, some hunters in the early season, they're, they're not going cause they don't think it's, you know, as good. Um, it's hot, right. it's buggy, you know, they just, you know, it's a lot, it's going to keep a lot of guys out, out of the woods. Um, they're just, they're, they're just not, they're not feeling it yet. You know, I talk to guys, you know, by me and I'll say, you know, I, you know, I can't wait to go. And these guys are really like, no, it's still too hot, you know? Mm-hmm. And you know. to me, it's like, okay, well, you just, you, you push past the, the heat or whatever, you know, um, and the deer have, you know, that's the less amount of pressure that they're going to receive probably in the beginning of the season. So everybody's you know, got excuses. The best I mean, uh, too yeah. hot, you know, too cold, too, too windy. Um, but there's always an <laughs> yeah. advantage to all that for yeah. the hunter. Yeah. You know, yeah. right. hundred percent, man. And the, and the thing is the deer don't know any different. You know what I mean? As far as like, they're not waking up that day or whatever going, Hey Bob, it's a little warm today. I think, uh, I think we'll lay down here for a little while longer. I don't think I'm going to move around much today. You know what I mean? It's like, they still have to go about whatever their, whatever their biology is telling them. You know what I mean? If they're, if they got to eat, they're still going to go eat. If they got to go get a drink, they're still going to go get a drink. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever the case is, I'm kind of the same way where, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to get out and I actually kind of have learned, uh, you know, not that I've had success, but I've learned to enjoy, you know, getting out early in the year, even when it is hot, just for that reason. Cause I know some of these pieces around me, especially the swamps that I, that I hunt, nobody wants to go in there that time of year because of the bugs and just the, the nastiness. Right. And that's the time when I have the place to myself. And that's actually whenever I had some pretty decent encounters. Um, and then, you know, as it got a little cooler, those deer became less and less visible for obvious reasons. People started, you know, hunting a little bit more frequently and stuff like that. So I totally, that's one of the things I want to get, you know, for me, I've always said, you know, the guys that I, you know, look up to that I think are really, that are really good hunters, you know, there's, to me, they've had, there's a bunch of things they have in common, but the one thing that I see that they have in common that I strive to get better at is to start to kill the majority of my deer in the earlier part of October. Because to me, that says that you truly know like where the deer are spending time and you know how they're going to move, you know where they're going to bed, you know where they're going to eat, you know how they're going to travel. And, and so you're just picking your opportunity and your ambush point, you know what I mean? And so for me, you know, that's kind of a goal that I've had for myself is to figure out how to become a better early October hunter, or for me, late September, early October, cause we come in a little bit early, but, um, that's kind of, that's kind of my thinking there. And so you guys are speaking, speaking to me with this, uh, with this one, um, this next question here, it's, uh, this fellow writes in and says, you know, it seems that you, that you, uh, that remote oaks and swamps is one of your favorite early season tactics. Do you usually have a buck already targeted before going in, or are you just kind of hunting the area knowing that that oak is there? Um, and if you did locate a good buck, is it usually from camera intel or something else? So I guess talk a little I'm bit. Having a hard time with that question, right? <laughs> so I guess talk a little bit about. Um, I guess it's breaking apart. So you know what he's saying first is that you. It seems that you know in some of those swamps you're focusing on some remote oaks in those swamps as like one of your favorite early season kind of a kind of approaches is i guess number one is that true and then what i'm assuming it's because you know maybe the crops have come down at that point and that becomes like the primary food source and and the draw for that area Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um in, in swamps um acorns are a big plus because there's only so much high ground it'll hold acorns you know, in a lot of swamps, I mean, you get some swamps got a big hardwood ridge next to it, but in a lot of swamps, you'll only have so much for oaks. Um, so you can get to the, to the, 
to the spots that have isolated oaks and get to the front of them, like the first oak tree where the, the bedding comes out of to go to. And, um, they, you know, you get in there uh, opening week, they can be very successful. And I've had a lot of success on those isolated oaks in early season. And sometimes I'm, I'm hunting and uh, it's, you know, random deer. Mm-hmm. You know, you just know there's some good ones in the area. But most of the time, if I'm hunting an area, um, I'm hunting there because I know of a couple bucks that are in the area. Right. Um, it doesn't mean I won't hunt, I won't shoot something else that comes in if it, you know, if it tickles my fancy. But right. generally, I'm I'm there because there's a buck in that area, and I'm hunting down the bedding areas. Um, and at that time frame, I'm putting myself between the bedding areas and the acorns. Um, acorns are huge in early season, um, for sure. Right. Tim, what about you, man? Where you're at in the in the North Woods? Is there, you know, I'm not real familiar with the terrain, you know, in that in that area. I'm assuming you get into some swamps and so forth. Are you kind of seeking out those remote food opportunities as well? Yeah, you know, if if it's early season, you know, if there is some isolated oaks, you can you can definitely um, check them out to see if they're dropping, see what kind of you know harvest I guess there's going to be, um, what kind of crop. Um, but a lot of the area there's been a lot of logging up by us, so they've taken a lot of the good mature oaks, but which is unfortunate. Logging is kind of like a double-edged sword where it's like it creates bedding, um, creates food, but at the same time you're taking away some mature timber and you're taking away some um, corridors and, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, if I'm thinking like, you know, with Dan, you know, the first thing I, I was thinking about when we are talking about scouting in early season, I was thinking about the workshops and – I think a lot has to go with what your spring sales scouting was telling you, what your previous intel is telling you. So you can, no. you can see um, where the bedding areas are in the springtime, you know, mm-hmm. you know where they are. Right. And then, you know, based on your wind, you know, based on your shining, your trail cameras, you know, a lot of the things are going to help you determine, you know, what, what, you know, which route to go right. and which pathway yeah. to head. Um, when you talk about, early season and you talk about the oaks um i think about when you guys went to minnesota you know when and mm-hmm. you you and joe you know and you were island hopping and you were getting on the oaks yep and that was the, that was the whole that was key of that hunt. And, and, and that goes right into this question because um what we were doing is is we were hunting an area that was loaded with oaks it was uh hilly terrain and we thought, well, we'll go on the swamps and we'll find isolated oaks because the deer would just get up in their beds and feed. I mean, how do you hunt them? Mm-hmm. You know, in the hilly stuff. It was really difficult when there's oaks in the bedding areas. It's really difficult to hunt them. So we went down to those swamps and there was no oaks down there. So those particular swamps around there, we went to each one of them. We only worked, man. We could not find oaks. We could not find signs of bucks. There's old signs from like rut and stuff. But it was early season that it all moved up into the hills where the oak trees were. And uh, we just made a decision right there and then that uh, no matter what it took, we were going to find a swamp that had isolated oaks. And that is why Joe shot that big buck. We went we found one. We found an area that had big sign. It had isolated oaks and little islands. And even though it was a huge area, there was just little spots with those isolated oaks on those islands. And we knew that buck would be in one of them, and we hunted those islands down. 
and when I got down to the last island and it was Joe's turn, I mean, we pretty much knew <laughs> he was going to have the opportunity, whether or not he killed it or spooked it, but we were pretty sure that the buck would be there and he got it. Hmm. Um, how big, point, uh, how big are these, how big are these islands when you're island hopping? Like how big are these kind of isolated areas? Uh, well, in that particular case, the one he shot it on was probably about, uh, 75 yards long and about 30 yards wide. Hmm. And I remember when we were mapping it out, we were like, uh, you don't, what if he's betting on the edge of it? And I was like, I don't think so. And, and, um, you know, me and both Joe both thought he'd be betting on this little tiny clump of an Island, like a couple of trees that was just off of the, uh, the Island where Joe hunted. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that's where he got up and came to Joe, you know, right from where we thought he'd be. Right. Um, some of these islands that I hunt are um, an acre. Some of them are uh, bigger. Some of them are smaller. Um, some of them they're bedded right on the tips of the island, like the points coming off. Some of them they're bedding, you know, off of the island into like some dogwood or something and mm-hmm. coming to the island. Um, they're all a little different. Right. And how far how far away was Joe set up from where that where that deer was bedded? Roughly, I would say he was probably about seventy-five yards. Wow, nice. Actually, got a, vis- a, vi- a visual of him getting up out of bed, even, huh? Uh I don't know that he has that or not. Uh, He's—I mean—that hunts on video. It's in uh, the Hunt Public Challenge, their first uh, first series, Minnesota. Right. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. You'll have to check that out. That's uh, that's one of the things I think that you know that I need to get better at in, in some of these swamps is just kind of trying to find those isolated, you know, food opportunities. And, you know, one, I think learning different variety of, uh, you know, or, um, species of trees that are going to provide, you know, food feed or food opportunities, uh, for deer. Cause a lot of these you know swamps in this general area, I've not run across a lot of, a lot of white oaks necessarily. Um, you know, so that, and that's one of the things I've talked about too, where I wanted to get better at is being able to kind of identify more tree species and what, you know, different browse opportunities would be in those areas. So I can better pinpoint, you know, I might be walking by something that is a really good food opportunity and not know it at this point, you know, and I think that's partially what's happening to me to a degree. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, Head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd do those few things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.